here with KJ No, um, writer, journalist, and activist. Um, and KJ, uh, we're we're talking about the Meng Wanzhou case um, in light of the ruling, which uh, was just it, this is being recorded on May twenty eighth. The ruling by the BC Supreme Court on uh, Meng Wanzhou not being the case not being dismissed, meaning uh, she's still in she's still under arrest in Canada and in jeopardy of being extradited to the U.S. For, uh, for violating U.S. sanctions on Iran as a Chinese uh, company official uh, based in China and having been arrested by Canada. So we're going to try to untangle this little imperial knot to the extent that we can and probably over a few episodes. But uh, today I'm really happy uh, that KJ uh, was joining me. Thank you, KJ. Thank you. All right, so let's just, um, I'm just going to go over a little bit about this case. Uh, it started at the end of 2018. So Meng uh, is arrested at um, 2018, December, uh, arrested um, in Canada, uh, in Vancouver, where she, she has permanent residency in, Vancouver, in uh, Canada. Um, she's also a permanent resident in Hong Kong. She's a chief financial officer for Huawei, which is a huge tech company based in China. And she's arrested on orders by um, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York. Um, the arrest warrant was issued in August and the RCMP, the Canadian police, arrested her on December 1st. Um, and they've been trying to get her extra the u.s has been uh, started an extradition proceeding ever since so uh the notion is that Meng uh was uh, use you know huawei is trading with um iran china i mean in general is not complying with uh, the u.s attempts to essentially strangle iran to death <laughs> um, and for that crime uh they have basically had canada kidnap Meng. Did I miss anything? No, that's absolutely correct. I think uh, the other thing we want to talk a little bit about is Huawei itself. Uh, yes. Huawei is one of the largest corporations uh, in China. It is actually in 170 countries, and it is probably the most advanced telecommunications company in the world. They own about half of the base patents for what we call 5G technology, which is the next generation of the internet. The relationship between 5G and what most people are using currently, 3 or 4G, is like the difference between your brainstem and the cerebral cortex. It's just that much faster, that much more complex, that much more interconnected. And it's a technology that will transform the way we communicate, the way we do computation, the way we uh, understand and negotiate the world, including uh, artificial intelligence and also driverless cars. So it's a critical technology. Huawei is the uh, company which is probably the most advanced in the world uh, in this technology. And they're also uh, collectively owned. They're owned by their workers. So it's quite an extraordinary company. Uh, the founder is uh, the founder is Ren Zhengfei, 
uh, and he was an engineer in the People's Liberation Army uh, about 40 years ago. And then he started this, you know, with a little bit of uh, uh, money and built it into this multinational conglomerate. And the fiscal director, the financial director, is his daughter. This is Meng Wanzhou, and she's the person who has been taken hostage. So the technology is pertinent because a part of what the Americans are doing here is, uh, and so, sorry, I, I sometimes talk to Americans and use the term the Americans. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I, I can't help it. But yeah, part of what the U.S. Uh, is doing here is uh, is trying to prevent um, basically the most technical the most technologically advanced uh, society now, which has been proven by Huawei and also increasingly like obvious in terms of the way China responded to COVID-19 compared to the U S right? Like there are, there are clear signs that China is more advanced now than pretty much any other uh, country in terms of like technology and their ability to just do these kinds of things, um, organization, social organization? Well, I mean, I think it really ties into a, a couple of things. One is that the Chinese system is a planned economy. It's a kind of a socialist economy in transition. It has elements of market uh, and state capitalism, but it is essentially an economy that is designed and planned to deliver the greatest good for its people. And in that vein, it also is tremendously science-oriented. About uh, over 80% of its top leadership are scientists and engineers, as opposed to most European Western countries, most of the top leadership lawyers, lawyers and, yeah. and business people. So it's a very, very different approach. And once again, long-term thinking, scientific thinking, uh, the common good, the public good, and a socialist approach to development. Now, this is problematic for the West because in China, in doing so, uh, threatens the West, in particular the neoliberal model, with the threat of a counterexample. That is, uh, up to this point, development has always been considered to be Western and capitalist. If you develop a country, it has to become Western. And of course, it has to become more and more capital capitalistic and more and more financialized. And uh, China offers a counter model, which is really seen as an existential threat by the ruling classes of the West. And in particular, because of this, there have been several measures that are aimed or designed to uh, take China down. Uh, one of them was what we call the Pacific Pivot, which was a military encirclement of China, uh, surrounding China with 400 bases, uh, arming all these bases to the teeth with uh, advanced weapons, radar, missiles, and uh, essentially creating a, a, a snare or a vice around China, especially in the South China Sea, where $5.3 trillion worth 
of goods trans, uh, transits, and 60% of China's oil uh, moves through that area. The Chinese response to this has been to break the encirclement almost as they did during the Long March by taking a long overland route outside to the rest of the world. And this is what we call the Belt and Road Initiative or the One Belt, One Road. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, just, I did want to say, like, the whole idea that China is a threat is also you're already I mean, I know we're not here and many people who uh, analyze this from a anti-imperialist perspective aren't. But like it's that it's like the mentality that sees China as a threat is an imperial mentality. Right. Because like China explicitly wants uh to a multipolar world. They don't want to control everything everybody does in the world. That's what the empire wants. That's not what China wants. Yes. And, and historically, yes. Historically, yeah. China has not been an expansionist state. You know, yeah, people exactly. point out that when China built a wall, it was to keep, uh, you know, others out. It was not to expand outward. And yeah. if we think of Chinese philosophy and Chinese history, uh, there are several elements to it that are really important. One is, of course, Confucianism, which is really about uh, virtue and meritocracy, that you don't build a state based on uh, you know, bloodline or feudalistic power. What you do is you make sure that the most intelligent and the most virtuous people rise to the top. So that's the Confucian aspect of it. The, the other aspect of it is, of course, Buddhism, uh, which is, again, a non-interfering, uh, a very kind of a, uh, a compassionate and non-interfering and uh, understanding of the interconnectedness of all things. The third element is, is Taoism. And Taoism, of course, believes in balance. It's uh, the dialectic. It's understanding that you do not overstep uh, you know, your boundaries. You always look for that kind of constant, dynamic, fluid balance, the yin and yang of all things. Yeah. And then the fourth influence, which is equally important, is Mohism. And Mohism is the belief, that, uh, it's a kind of universalist belief that all human beings have equal rights uh, under the heavens, you know, that all uh, men and women are brothers and sisters, that we are all part of a human family. And because of that, the influence of Mohism is really the fundamental understanding of inclusion and diversity long before these terms ever became catchwords, uh, you know, in the Western imaginary. The Chinese were practicing this for thousands of years. And you see this in the kind of for example, the multi-religiosity, the ecumenical uh, multi-religiosity multi that no other uh, state or, or, or empire had ever achieved. For example, you would have Buddhists and uh, Muslims and Taoists, all of them coexisting. There are at least four schools of Islam, which are indigenous to China. Uh, there's a very, very powerful tradition of Sufism, which is in China. Uh, when people think of China, they think of, for example, Kung Fu. But there are actually lineages, there are multiple schools that are purely Islamic Kung Fu. So that gives you a sense of the kind of inclusionary, multi-religious, diverse 
culture and society that China was. And that's something that I think the West has really a hard uh, time uh, wrapping its mind around. It has to protect its own imperialism and colonialism and expansionism onto the Chinese. And exactly. from that projection, yeah. it's projection. Projection is exactly, you know, again, it's really hard to tell what, as a Westerner, it's really hard to understand even what's going on in China because everything you read about China, it's basically projections. It's all kinds of projections of what uh, the West is doing or wants to do, like totalitarian a surveillance dystopia. The propaganda is so intense and it's so much based on reading China as basically a, they want to, they just want to do what we're, we've already done. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. So if we get into that uh, understanding, we understand not only is it projection, but it's the projection of everything evil and sublimated in the Western a subconscious that is being projected out onto the Chinese. So as you point out, the very simple example of genocide, I mean, the West and the Imperial West is entirely built on genocide, you know, from beginning to end, it is a genocidal project. Now, the thing is that the Chinese have never done that. That is not part of their cultural history, as I just pointed out. It's a culture of universalism, inclusion, and diversity. Uh, But uh, because this projection takes on this quality of demonization, then uh, again, you, you are constantly trapped in this mindset where you projecting the worst of the West uh, onto the East, onto China. And again, you know, the U.S. has been in, you know, almost a war every single year since uh, the end of World War II. Uh, China has not fired a bullet from its army in 40 years. Uh, And yet it's China, which is supposed to be the aggressor. And the, the West and the, especially the Americans have no concept of the havoc and the, you know, the suffering that their militarism is wreaking all over the world with, you know, at what is it currently, at least seven declared wars and military incursions in 150 different countries. So, and and attacks on their own allies. So just before we get into like some, I, I wanted to to talk to you specifically because I know you've got this analysis, meaning you suffered through the reading of the BC <laughs> Supreme Court's judgment. Um, so, but before that, I just wanted to mention like another element of this, uh, which uh, was pointed out to me on Twitter by someone who I don't know his real name, but someone who goes by the name of Mont Jiang. So uh, hat tip to Mont Jiang. Uh, but he pointed out a book called uh, The American Trap by Frederick Pierucci. Um, and Pierucci was uh, working for a company, uh, a French industrial giant, Alstom, who has a major, uh, you know, like m- responsible in large part for uh, energy production in France. Um, and, uh, and he was essentially kidnapped in the same way on this kind of American universal jurisdiction. He was, uh, in 2013, he was put in, um, maximum security for a year. 
And then he was replaced. Uh, he was released in April 2014. And he he learned uh, upon his release that basically he was a bargaining chip um, in a negotiation, which ultimately ended with uh, the Americans, G- General Electric, getting a hold of uh, a lot of France's energy sector, specifically Alstom's energy operations. And so, like, if you if you analyze what's going on in those terms, in that like plundering a, an, another corporation and taking hostages, apparently that that has a precedent. Although there are many other elements, like namely the war on China, going on. But Trump uh, did mention in 2018, December 12th, uh, around December 12th, that he was he would use Meng Wanzhou as a Guard, bargaining chip in trade negotiations with China. He said, whatever is good for this country, uh, you know, I'll do. Um, and Trudeau has said something similar. So this is, uh, as you know, it's a, it's a political kidnapping. It's a military kidnapping. And it's also a very crass business kidnapping. Absolutely. Yes. So it really is. I mean, we have to understand this uh, as an act of war. Uh, inside a much larger war, which is the United States. It's the, it's the U.S. and China, uh, you know, to put it plainly, are at war, or rather the U.S. has declared war against China. It's labeled China a revisionist power, which is a polite word for official enemy. Uh, it's labeled it along with Russia and North Korea and Iran and ISIS and Islamic terror. Venezuela. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, this is the official American doctrine, this national defense strategy, national security strategy. All of these things come out explicitly name China as the enemy, as a quote unquote revisionist power. And the form that this warfare is taking on right now, because it hasn't crested over into hot war or kinetic warfare, it's taking the form of what we refer to as gray zone warfare or hybrid warfare. Mm -hmm. And so what that is, is really using all the powers that the state has in order to destroy, attack, uh, demoralize, and... uh, Uh, demolish the enemy. So this takes the form of trade war, tech war, lawfare, that is legal warfare, diplomatic warfare, cyber warfare, and of course, what we are subjected to day in and day out, which is information warfare, i.e. demonization, propagandistic demonization. All right. I think we have set the table for the lawfare element of this now. Um, So... The, the argument that is being made, I suppose, by American lawyers who get paid to do this um, and uh, has been uh, to some extent accepted, I suppose, by the Canadian judge, uh, is that Meng lied to a British bank, HSBC, when she was in China uh, about transactions between HSBC and Huawei uh, and HSBC and Iran. So the idea is that by doing business with HSBC, she caused HSBC to violate the Iran sanctions, which is apparently in this reasoning a form of fraud, which apparently in this reasoning means she is to be extradited to the U.S. 
Yes, it's you can see how tortured it is. It's an extraordinary. <laughs> I can't even get myself through the. I can't even make myself say these words. It's it's. Yeah. So yes. Irritating. Yes, it's it's incredibly tortured, and it, it you know for anybody who has a smidgen of sense, you'd realize that it doesn't make any sense, except that you have to understand it as an act of lawfare or an act of war. So essentially, uh, it's two things. One is the United States wants to uh, sanction Iran. It has no, uh, it has no legal standing, no moral standing to sanction Iran, and the world does not agree with this. The UN does not approve of these sanctions. Canada itself does not approve of these sanctions. However, the U.S has declared sanctions against Iran and then has decided that it is going to use its extraterritorial long-arm jurisdiction to force every other country possible to, uh, to, to follow its dictates. The other piece of this is that the United States wants to destroy Huawei. It wants to destroy yes. Huawei because Huawei is the most advanced company in 5G. And if Huawei is successful in building 5G networks all over the world, these 5G networks will be impermeable to Western spying, which is traditionally what has been the case with Cisco and all the other uh, networks that have essentially been beholden to uh, uh, the American Five Eyes intelligence networks. So inside okay. this, yes. Here we go. Let's let's do it. Yes. You read the judgment. <laughs> let's, yes. let's go for it. So inside this uh, tortured uh, judgment, um, the U.S. wants to charge Huawei with uh, violating sanctions, but they can't do that. And the simple reason why they can't do that is because Canada does not have sanctions against Iran. So in order to, to uh, extradite and to punish Meng Wanzhou for violating Iran's sanctions is a very difficult task because it fails on the fundamental criteria of extradition, which is double criminality. That is, if you're trying to extradite somebody from one country to another, you can only extradite them if the crime that you're trying to extradite them for is also a crime in the jurisdiction where they are currently staying. Um, uh, just a quick analogy. You know, Singapore has uh, laws against uh, chewing gum and actually selling chewing gum. If you sell chewing, if you sell chewing gum in Singapore, uh, that's a two-year fine or a hundred thousand uh, dollar. That's a two-year sentence or a hundred thousand dollar fine. Okay. Now imagine that Singapore. Uh, decided that it was going to exercise long-arm jurisdiction and uh, arrest uh, you, Justin, for eating or chewing gum or selling chewing gum in Canada. Right. I mean, we would think this absurd because the double criminality does not obtain. Uh, but in this situation, uh, what the U.S. did in collusion, or rather the Canadian Attorney General did, was they concocted uh, a plausible pretext under which to charge her for double criminality. And essentially, the, the charge is one of fraud, that when she spoke to HSBC in order to get a loan, 
she misrepresented the fact that that Huawei had a subsidiary, alleged subsidiary, that was also doing business with Iran. And so by getting the money and by pretending not to be doing business with Iran, they lied to HSBC. Now, lying in and of itself is not a crime. In order for them to allege fraud, what they need to show is that not only did uh, Meng Wanzhou lie to HSBC, but that this lie had a material impact in the sense that it either caused harm to HSBC or it created the risk of harm. Okay. Now, here's where the legal reasoning has to become very, very uh, contorted in order to... Yeah. <laughs> Right. So how would you how would you make that argument? You know, how would you make that argument? Because there is no argument really to be made. Uh, Meng Wanzhou told uh, HSBC that she needed a loan and this loan was going to be used uh, possibly for business with Iran. Uh, Now, the thing is, uh, HSBC is a British company. Meng Wanzhou is a Chinese national, and this uh, dialogue took place in Hong Kong, which is Chinese territory. So how do you make that case that there is some kind of uh, malfeasance going on? It's a hard, it's a hard struggle. You know, it's it's really an uphill battle. But luckily, well, this this intrepid judge was up for this challenge. Well, you know, the judge really did the you know uh, did the lion's share of the work because certainly the attorney general, the prosecuting party, uh, really didn't have much of an argument. But right. essentially, the argument goes uh, something like this: um, the fact the the argument is that. Uh, there was fraud against HSBC. And um, even though we cannot make the argument, the judge throws out the argument that the prosecutor makes, you cannot make the argument that there was harm to HSBC. You cannot make that argument uh, because one, HSBC, uh, first, because Canada is not, you know, the Canada doesn't have sanctions against, uh, Canada would not sanction a bank like HSBC for violating sanctions that it doesn't have. So there is no threat uh, of sanction. But the other argument that the government tries to make, the Canadian government tries to make, is that essentially... Um, there's um, first she argues that criminality is conduct not statute so she says that although there is no statute that corresponds in in Canadian law uh, uh, we we have to derive the criminality from the conduct and she says that we can't say that the sanctions apply but we can still argue that the context and the environment of U.S. sanctions can be adopted into this case. And this is a very, very spurious argument. And she does all the heavy lifting for the prosecution. But she says that uh, what you can do is 
although the although the sanctions don't apply in Canada, what you can do is you can transplant the environment of the thinking behind the fraud charge uh, oh, that God. the U.S. want to levy. Yeah, and you say that know, yes. You know what's a really bad sign is when she preemptively, uh, without any prompting, says, "But this is not like slavery." Yes. No. No. That's <laughs> okay. yes. Yes. That's exactly. Right. So that was that was one of the cases that she referred to, you know, like if somebody, uh, you know, is if slavery is not a crime in uh, in Canada uh, and it's actually something morally abhorrent. Uh, but if you have a slaveholding state like the United States at the time of that uh, at, of, of that case then uh, Canada cannot extradite, you know, because slavery does not uphold. But what she does is she says, this is not like slavery, because she says because that sanctions, sanctions are different from totally America. genocidal towards Iran are the kind of thing we might do, even though we don't do it. Exactly. You know, which is good <sighs> on the face of it. I mean, if anything is similar uh, on a genocidal level, I would say sanctions uh, come very yeah. close to that. Yeah. So essentially, you know, she's saying that the the legal character of the foreign acts as fixed by the foreign jurisdiction jurisdiction can be notionally transposed with the other relevant aspects of the context in which they were committed. What she's essentially saying is that you have to read the allegations sympathetically and kind of adopt the culture and the reasoning and the legal character of the act uh, of the judgment of the prosecution and then import that into the Canadian case. And if you do that, then you can, with great authority, declare that this is fraud and this fits the criteria of double criminality. So it's like it's like kind of being compassionate towards the American <laughs> Attorney General, right? It's like a kind of, let's let's be compassionate and empathetic, and let's let's try to understand their perspective here. Yes. So that's one way of looking at it. So I mean, that is the compassionate way of understanding <laughs> it, which is to say that it's an act of compassion towards yeah. a really threadbare and uh, you know abhorrent uh, legal case. But the other more honest way to refer to it, if we think in a kind of an emotional register, is it's an act of sycophancy and, and lackeyism. Uh, I mean, that, really, that, never, that never happens in Canada. <laughs> well, well, let's think about that. I mean, I mean, you remember Maha Ara, right? Yeah. This was yeah. the Canadian, Yes, he was the Canadian engineer who was kidnapped yep. and rendered to Syria. Syria. And he yep. was tortured for a, a year. I think he was held in a coffin-sized cell. And, yep. you know, he says that the, the torture was so great, uh, it makes you forget the taste of your mother's milk. I mean, an, an extraordinary travesty. You know, he was kidnapped uh, by the Canadians on the behest of the CIA. And... Uh, Essentially, it's just one very salient example of... I got another one. There's another one I covered. It just Mm -hmm. occurred to me as you were speaking of a guy named Hassan Diab. Mm -hmm. He's a Lebanese-Canadian 
mm-hmm. professor uh, in Ottawa, and he was extradited uh, in, in, in jail in, in France. France mm-hmm. wanted him mm-hmm. for a bombing that, like, that he was, you know, there's no way he could have done. He was not even in the country. It was a bombing that took place in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, of a synagogue and France in the French system, this was another thing. It was like the French system says you don't prove your guilt. You know, we don't have to prove you're guilty, right? We, you have right. to prove yeah. that you're innocent. Right. And, and the, and they handed the Canadian government handed him over to France to go to jail. And they said something similar, like, well, you know, in the French system, <laughs> it's on him to prove uh, so even though it doesn't meet the standards of, you know, even though we would have thrown this case out, uh, the, the French want him. So we're going to give him up. Yeah. So we again, we see that same, you know, to put it kindly, a political economy of compassion or empathy where towards all that surplus. Yes, it all goes towards, the, you know, in a certain direction towards the top. Right. Yeah, so, that's, so, that's true. That's truly Canadian <laughs> compassion. That's that's exactly what we're about here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but I I think uh, this just highlights that the you know the Canadians right now are and I've been watching uh, the Canadian news. I mean, they like to pretend that Meng Wanzhou's kidnapping, and that's only the way that is really only. the only way we should characterize it. Her right. a political uh-huh. kidnapping is a strictly by-the-books law, rule-of-law procedure. But the fact is Canadians have a terrible history of working with the United States in kidnappings. And uh, there are dozens of examples, I mean, including what you just mentioned, but Maha Ara, I think, is probably the best well-known. And, of course, Canada has a long history of kidnapping and torture and mistreatment and the refoulement of immigrants and refugees and indigenous people since mm-hmm. its inception. So this is oh, just you know, an example. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, and then there's another case that we were talking about, right? Like Yang Kai Hui. Uh, yes. The second wife of Mao who was kidnapped, uh, Mao Zedong, who was kidnapped in the 20s or in the 30s and murdered by the um the nationalists in china yes and i've heard yeah like someone was saying that that she this is probably like one of the examples that's on the minds of people in china now yes absolutely i think that is a really good um a good point. Uh, so Chairman Mao had uh, his his second wife was Yang Kai Hui, and she had three children with Mao. She was really, you know, the the love of his life. And in the winter of 1930, the Guomindang, the Chinese fascists, they kidnapped her and her son, uh, and they tortured her, and they. Uh, you know, and they threatened to kill her in order to demoralize Mao and to put pressure on him to capitulate to them. Uh, they also tried to make her publicly denounce Mao. Eventually, she was tortured and killed. Uh, and she was executed in Changsha on November 14th in 1930. She was all of 29 years old. But, you know, this is the example that the Chinese leadership has to be thinking about. You kidnap a family member on the mm-hmm. slightest, on the thinnest of pretexts, 
and you hold them in captivity for years. This is a mother of young children and you parade her around and humiliate her and you do this in order to put pressure on Huawei and to demoralize them. And everybody is thinking, this is exactly what the Guomindang tried to do us do to us in 1930. And we know how that ended. Yeah, the you know the, of course there's the other imperial lackey with the with the asserting U.S. universal jurisdiction, which is like the Brit the Brit the British who are um, who are going to extradite an Australian uh, citizen for treason against the U.S. So apparently you don't you can be Australian and commit treason against the U.S. as well by publishing documents of u.s crimes uh, exactly exactly and and being treated as a, a terrorist and being held you know in you know in under conditions that are unimaginable i mean essentially he was charged with skipping bail but he's being yeah. held under conditions that are uh you know just incredible and uh practically you know life-threatening so Again, the same treatment. Uh, I think they're very analogous cases, Julian Assange and Meng Wanzhou. It shows the nature of the legal system and the way that it bends to the long-arm jurisdiction of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when, when I... When I see like legal scholars and lawyers kind of geeking out over these cases and talking about the ins and outs of the arguments, I just think it's so preposterous because it's like, you know, they already know how this is going to go based on the politics and the geopolitics of what they want to do here. You know, the lawyer's job is not to reason their way to uh, the just and legal con- conclusion. The lawyer's job is to find a, find arguments for what the elites want to do anyway. Yes, I agree with you. And I think that's actually goes to a much deeper issue, which is really uh, the problems inside Western jurisprudence itself, the kind of legal reasoning and the way that the logic is structured, as well as the structures of the the courts themselves are designed to deliver uh, the verdict that is desired. And I've been talking to colleagues who are judges, and they say that with a high profile case like this, with so much political pressure, it is not possible. It's impossible for a judge to exercise the quote unquote impartiality that they would like to put The independent judiciary, yeah, the independent judiciary, which is like a, a hallmark of why the anglo-american countries praise themselves so much right and that's the it's what separates us from the these barbaric other countries in the world including china for example yes and yet anytime there's anything on the line they do exactly what you expect them to do right exactly yeah so the mystification is is very clear all you have to do is look is look at the record they deliver the judgments that are expected of them and you will not see it it's almost impossible to see exceptions for that and if you actually take the time to look at the quality of the legal reasoning you can see how corrupt and depraved and overreaching and politicized the sophistry is i I don't know if it, this is going to work for the U.S. And I mean, you know, people can define work in different ways. But if the goal is to to prevent Huawei from becoming the big player in 5G or to prevent China 
from creating a more multipolar situation as opposed to the a world where the US dominates every little inch of the world. I don't I don't see this preventing either of those things. I don't know. Do what do you what do you think? Um I think I think the writing is on the wall. Uh I think it is with the uh pressures that the US is applying what they can do is they can create tremendous chaos, they can create tremendous yeah. suffering. Uh, but they will not be able to prevent the rise of a multipolar world, just as they have not been able to prevent uh, Huawei from continually expanding and advancing. I mean, they've tried to cut out all of Huawei's suppliers. And the only thing that Huawei has done is it's decided to make its own chips and its own operating system fairly soon is going to be entirely self-sufficient and it's continuing to advance technologically. So just with Huawei itself, you can see it's not working, although it's buying tremendous ill will for this, once again, this, you know, horrendous kidnapping. But in in a similar vein, all this gray zone warfare, the lawfare, the tech warfare, the trade war, uh, all of this saber rattling and information warfare, all of these things will not prevent uh, uh, the creation of a multipolar world. And it would be much better if the United States and the Five Eyes and the you know imperial powers actually took all that energy and ingenuity and deviousness and actually brought it back into developing their own country so they could actually have a livable society rather than a neoliberal, uh, immiserated, you know, uh, failed Hellscape. State. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a that's a good enough note to end on, I think. Um, so thank you very much, KJ. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, we'll keep following this. I, I want to talk to uh, I want to keep talking to people about this and, and trying to uh, attack it from different angles, because it's just like I really think there's so much about the world and how it works today. That's that's wrapped up in this case and the Canadian media and the American media are not telling you about it. Yes, and I really think uh, the Canadian public needs to wake up to what is being perpetrated yeah. in their name. Uh, I, I think that if people understood what was really happening, and if they understood the fact that you have a Canadian judge who has just lit the kindling on yeah. potential global war, yeah, I yeah, that's right. That is that could be how history remembers this. That's that's totally that's a really important.